Welcome back to Elder Side, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is it. This is our last episode of the year, and so what we are going to do today is look back over that year, which is to say, it's the year in review show. We were just talking off mic about how we expect this episode to be a bit of a shambles, but we do have a plan for it, I think. <laughs> and here's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to talk about our favorite stories. We're going to look at some of the writing craft that we appreciated from this year. Uh, and we're going to be looking ahead to 2023. I will say one thing, which is we're only talking about the stories that we've done on the main show, on the free show, Elder Sign of Weird Fiction Podcast. And I think that's part of what has gotten in our heads is so much of what's memorable is what we've done on on Patreon. But uh, we'll be having that fight on air, I think, as we go through this episode. Yeah, I don't think a fight with each other, but I think a, a struggle a struggle against nature, perhaps, I guess, yes, is the type of story that this, yeah, exactly. that this episode is. <laughs> and we are doing something a little bit differently uh, you know, this year, this year in review show than we have done in the past. And that is because, well, we did something different this year in 2023, which was in 2022, we had had our Patreon supporters select two themes or groupings of stories for us to cover and to talk about about collectively here in the Year in Review show. And so that's what we're going to do to kick off this one, different than how we've done it in years past. We had two of these themes, and we'll just do them in order. There was kind of a, a major theme and a minor theme. And the major theme was occult detective stories. Stories that were officially a part of this series were Algernon Blackwood's A Victim of Higher Space. We also covered The Thing Invisible by William Hope Hodson, The Invader by Alice and Claude Askew. We did Seabury Quinn's The House of Horror, and then we did another horror. That was The Horror at Red Hook by H.P. Lovecraft. Then we did another Red. That was The Red Hand by Arthur Mackin. <laughs> That's all that was selected for this theme. But then we also just did some other occult detective stories because, hey, sometimes we do occult detective stories. And those stories were A Dead Gin in Cairo by P. Jelly Clark, Death and the Compass by Borges, and then another Seabury Quinn story, The Tenants of Broussac. And just to kick off a general conversation here, Brandon, about these stories about occult detectives is just to say that something that I learned through doing this series is that my definition, or at least my expectation of what an occult detective story is, I think might differ a lot from how most people are actually using that term. And what I mean by this is that, and this might be a little inflammatory here, or maybe even incendiary, but what I mean by this is that I just don't feel like John Silence or Karnacki the Ghost Finder are actually occult detectives. Uh, I'm not sure Elmer Vance is an occult detective either. For me, these people are paranormal investigators, not occult detectives. And at least when I think that I want to go read an occult detective story, what I am meaning is something like Sherlock Holmes or Hercule Poirot or Philip Marlowe, just with some horror stuff going on. And Maybe the shorter way to put it is that for me, the detective part has to come first, right? That my tastes are, that that's what I want in the foreground. But that is actually very different from the early examples of occult detective stories that we read this year. I'm so glad you brought this up because for me, it's a little bit the opposite in terms of needing the detective part to come first. I need the occult part to come first. And, and, I'm going to distinguish between occult and paranormal here because I think there's an important difference that 
you know, you you said your expectations were subverted to one degree or another, that these aren't occult detective stories um, because they weren't detective enough for you. A lot of these weren't occult detective stories for me or subverted my expectation of the occult detective stories because they weren't occult enough for me. And I, you know, I'm sure there's lots of great occult detective stories out there and great occult detective fiction. But I, I was surprised, Glenn, by the fact that though these stories were weird or paranormal, they often weren't occult with regard to the definitions of occult that I look for in literature, which includes which includes something maybe inscrutable or there's an element of knowledge that is beyond the comprehension of the investigator or reader beyond, you know, like what I mean, like, oh, there's a ghost. Like that's definable. Ghosts are a definable category of thing that people can confront and figure out how to deal with. Now, obviously, like true inscrutability makes for a difficult read, but the atmosphere of the inscrutable is something that I like in a good occult story. So yeah, that was something um, that was something I didn't find in too many of these stories. You find it, I think, in in Arthur Machen. Like I think he gets that. Uh, you know, the, the, this sense of there's maybe these different uh, ways of knowing that we can engage with. And, and we saw that a little bit in the red hand, less so than in, in, in most light. Uh, but there's also like another level of occultation um, where, you know, the investigators uncover something that might only be available to the initiated or part of a secret society or something like that. Uh, and so when we're just dealing with ghosts and goblins and so on, you know, I would have loved to have maybe read more stories like what we saw on Patreon, like um, the children of Monterosa, stories that rely on a different kind of logic or knowing or encounter that kind of maybe shatters our sense of knowing or our sense of epistemology. Um, and so thinking about this contrast, I'll say, in terms of what we got versus what I wanted or wanted to find in these stories, um, this has inspired me to write my own uh, cult detective uh, <laughs> stories in this vein. I get about 25 words written a day, but it, it's better than zero. And it's a true 25 words, which I'm excited by. I'm, I'm excited by this gap in expectation and this encounter of what we've read and thinking like, what do I want to find in a real occult detective story? Well, that's my job now to define that. And so I've begun to do that, which has been great. But um, I was surprised, Glenn, I think as much as you were to find that uh, what's going on in a lot of these stories is, is paranormal investigation, which just isn't quite what I'm looking for when I hear the word occult. Well, the, uh, the advice always is, if you want to read a good book, go write one. And uh, I actually had the same <laughs> impulse, though I have not actually been able to uh, crack into a Henslow story that I have been outlining all year, really, since we got into the series. And so, well, you know, if two years from now, you and I have uh, have written another occult detective story on our own, you know, each of us, then uh, that's something that's awesome. And of course, we'll make that available to people. I, I want to say as well that, you know, you and I are not genre police, and we're not attempting to be genre police, but this is what was voted for was, hey, cover a genre and uh, talk about the genre a little bit. And so, yeah, I think it's interesting to me that we both had expectations that were different from what we got, but also our expectations were very different from each other. I'm not sure that I'm all that interested in reading the thing that you're pitching uh, either. To me, that actually sounds pretty similar to what we what we did get. And uh, so, yeah, I think that's part of the fun there, right, is that uh, uh, these labels, these genre labels can mean very different things to to different people. And something that 
from certainly a publishing standpoint, from an editing standpoint, or even just from a, a cheerleading for the industry of writing stories standpoint that I hope is our standpoint, um, these labels should be expansive. They should be big. They should be big umbrella terms. Let's, you know, put as many labels on things as we can. Let's bring as many things into the labels as we can for sure. So we're not trying to uh, police any any boundaries or any any borders there. Before we move on to talk about Borges, I do want to talk about, well, a regret that I have about the horror at Red Hook. And really, it's simply that I don't feel like we gave the horror at Red Hook by H.P. Lovecraft. I don't think we gave that story the attention that it deserves. We really needed to do a two-parter on that story. We realized that, or at least I realized that before we recorded that episode, but we just didn't have the flexibility to do that. And that was mostly because it came so late in the year. And so, yeah, I think our recap and commentary was really solid work, but the discussion, and I led the discussion, so I'm, I'm talking about me here, but uh, <laughs> uh, I left a lot to be desired and uh, I left a lot on the table, I think, because I, I rushed it. And um, so I feel bad about that. Maybe we'll try to revisit that story uh, someday because it was just a bigger story, more interesting story than uh, I think either of us actually expected that to be. It's, it's a phenomenal story. And I think one of the, I, I hope that one of the things we can do in revisiting the story is incorporate the responses to the story, particularly uh, Victor Lavelle's The Ballad of Black Tom. Um, I, I think f- the best way for us to revisit the horror at Red Hook is to actually cover that Victor Lavelle novella and then through that uh, fold in the horror at Red Hook. And I think that that would be such an awesome episode. So I hope... Uh, maybe as a Patreon bonus episode or something we can incorporate in in terms of, uh, I don't know, maybe we can have a category of regrets at some point, <laughs> a, year, a year of regrets and revisiting um, that we could do that because that's really what I'd love to do. I, after really reading and thinking about the horror at Red Hook, I just kept on returning to the way that Victor Lavelle revisited this story in this world that Lovecraft um, created through a critical lens, but also through a lens of love for the original tale as um, horribly racist as it is. We don't like to bang on about that uh, too much, but it's, it's unavoidable with the horror at Red Hook and um, we're the wrong people to maybe uh, confront Lovecraft on those terms, though it's f- always fair to confront and stare down racism when you encounter it. Uh, but Le- Victor Lavelle did such an incredible job with his reprise of this story that um, I don't know. I just hope we are able to really dig in and talk about it someday. Yeah, I would really love to. It's been on my list for a long time. And frankly, the reason I just have never gotten around to reading it is that I assume that we would do it for the show someday. That that has not happened. It's been years. It hasn't happened yet. But uh, I think your suggestion is a good one, though. That's probably coming to Patreon in 2025, not 2024. Right. But uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's definitely put that on the list. Well, we've got one more order of business here before we move on to Borges. And uh, that is to well, just pick our favorite stories from from this series, Brandon. I'm going to let you go first. You know, we've we've kind of griped a little bit about how most of the stories we read didn't fit our expectations or meet our expectations. But uh, still, I really liked a lot of these stories, and I know that you did too. So, what was your favorite of them? Yeah, it would be really unfair, I think, to say that we didn't like what we did this year. That's far, far from the truth. I think we're just saying that we had an expectations gap and uh, I don't know, hopefully we're at the age of maturity or wisdom to not let an expectations gap spoil our lives. And (laughs) certainly that didn't happen for me. I really love these stories. I would say number one, I think uh, for me from 
the occult detective side was harder at Red Hook. It really had a lot of these elements, secret societies, um, occultation of knowledge, uh, an actual investigator who encountered this stuff and had to handle it, you know, unfortunately in a Lovecraftian way, which means he went mad and he couldn't live near tall buildings anymore. But um, uh, it's better than being frightened of the smell of fish. And there's a lot of uh, wonderful stuff in the heart of Red Hook. So that's my, that's my number one. Um, Glenn, what about, what was your number one for you? Yeah, for me, it was The Tenants of Broussac by Seabury Quinn. It's basically an Agatha Christie short story, except it's also got some <laughs> horror stuff happening. That's literally what I just said. I wanted all the stories to be, and this is the one that was that. So that was fantastic on that level. But also, in this story, the horror stuff happens to involve the legacy of the Middle Ages, which is what I do for my day job. And uh, so it was, I think, tailor-made specifically for me. I absolutely loved it. It was not even any competition for me. Like, it was just... Yeah, I didn't even have to think about it. It was always going to be the tenants of Broussac for sure. I have Seabury Quinn on my list as well, but for me, it was House of Horrors, which was a story that uh, to me was was kind of predictive or set a pattern for a lot of what has become popular in contemporary horror, in in film at least. Um, I talked about Barbarian and so on, and um, just these uh, this this. I don't know, just the gruesomeness of this story. There was just so much to enjoy. And I think our takeaway from House of Horrors was it needed a second draft. But um, I really liked that story. There was so much to dig into, I think, in terms of structure, craft, technique. Um, Maybe it wasn't the best written story, but the bones of a really excellent story were all there. And so that gave me a lot to think about as uh, a writer, but then also as uh, an appreciator of horror and how this story was sort of prophetic. I I don't know, that's the wrong word, but a a pattern setter in terms of what's going to come after it. This is an important story for me. And then I also, my third story, I'll just toss it out here that I really loved was The Red Hand. These these, uh, uh, mocking stories are just a blast. And even though it didn't hold up to the inmost light, I love what Machen can do with the setting. I love what he can do with the minds of his characters. Uh, I love the strangeness he brings into the world, that it's still out there. I think, you know, a lot of what bugs me about contemporary writing um, and genre writing is this sense of we can know anything. We it's all It's all been discovered, so what's left for us to discover? And having... These characters, um, even though the Red Hand is very much uh, structurally based on a study in Scarlet, having the characters discover something ancient in their own backyards is something I think is important, actually, to bring into writing of uh, of the weird and about the world. And so I just loved the Red Hand. Well, this is probably a good time for us to uh, repeat our plea with listeners for someone out there in the audience to actually start a uh, a Seabury Quinn podcast. We've been asking for this for years. <laughs> we would love to do that. We obviously do not have the the time to do another show that it would overlap with this one. But gosh, I really wish someone would read all of these Seabury Quinn stories uh, in order and uh, talk talk about them. Talk to me about them uh, via a microphone. Uh, so. Please let us know if you do decide to take that up. Uh, Let's go talk about Borges now, Brandon. We did 
five Borges stories this year. I had a lot of fun reading these stories. Uh, They were The Library of Babel, Death and the Compass, Pierre Menard, author of The Quixote, Three Versions of Judas, and then the final story we did was Tlon, Ukbar, Orbis, Tertius. And I will kick us off here again, Brandon, by saying that I came into this series having read very little Borges and now, I mean, I feel like I've actually read a lot. Five stories over the course of the year felt like a lot to me. And uh, I'm going to have another incendiary takeaway here. Hopefully people won't rage quit the podcast, but hopefully this will spark a conversation <laughs> for us. But um, what I have discovered through this series is that I like Borges just fine, but I like him better when he's written by Gene Wolfe or Neil Gaiman. And what I mean by that is that I just am not interested in the types of philosophical questions that Borges is interested in. I don't care if reality is real or not. I guess also I've had to come to terms with the fact that uh, I don't really like Philip K. Dick or The Matrix that much either. These are things that are <laughs> beloved to people that I just am not interested in this question of whether reality is real or not. It's not an anxiety I have. It's not an interest I have. What I am interested in, what I do care deeply about are ecosystems and human institutions. And this is where I like the way that Gene Wolfe takes his cues from Borges, but then goes and does something very different from it. And let me just use Tlan, Akbar, and Orbis Tertius as an example here, because in this story, Borges says, sure, yeah, there's a lot of interesting animals and landscape features on Tlan, but uh, I'm not going to talk about those. <laughs> like, it's, li- it's not quite literally a sentence he says. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing there, but he says that. And wow, I was crestfallen when I read that, because that's exactly what I wanted. Like, if that sentence had been the opposite, I would have I would have said, hold on, I've got to go make some popcorn. Like, this is going to be the best thing I've ever read. And well, it is the best thing I've ever read, except that Gene Wolfe wrote it, right? Because Gene Wolfe says, actually, no, I am going to write about interesting animals and cool landscape features in a Borgesian way. And yeah, Wolfe gives me those imaginary landscapes. He gives me weird imaginary animals. He also gives me loads and loads of political philosophy and social commentary. Also gives me cool imaginary institutions, like a torturous guild, for example, the most famous example. So um, yeah, I guess that was probably a pretty incendiary thing to say. I also know it's totally a matter of taste. Also, I should be clear, I liked a lot of these stories. We'll talk about that. But uh, that's my big, that was my big takeaway from reading this, reading these many Borges stories. I think that's fair to say. I mean, I think if you, if you really discover Wolf before uh, reading Borges, these stories do feel a little slight. The same thing happened to me, I think, the first time I read Borges after reading Wolf. I, I, I thought, these are just, this, this is what, how is this an influence on anybody? You know, it's kind of like, um, I don't know, like discovering you like Bob Dylan covers better than Bob Dylan. You know, there's, <laughs> when, when other artists bring this extra dimension to the song sometimes, but then, you know, sometimes you go back and you put on a, a Dylan album and you're like, no, this, this is the right way to do it. I, this happened to me this week. This is why, you know, it's a little apropos. Uh, I was playing Burl Lives music for uh, my son um, because I'm just trying to find, you know, kind of joyful music for him to play, play on. And on Spotify, they just keep playing stuff. And it turns out Burl Lives put out a cover cover album put out a cover album of like folk music and there's a ton of Dylan on it. And um, Burl Lives cover of Don't Think Twice is like actually really good. <laughs> and 
<laughs> you wouldn't think so, but it's great. I mean, some of the other covers are genuinely terrible. But um, yeah, I, I was just thinking like that always reminds me of like my doorway to Bob Dylan was through covers. And so I'm always like, is real? Is Bob Dylan really good? I don't know. I've gone far afield here, but I get what you're saying. I guess that's all I'm saying. I've learned to really love Borges as I've gotten deeper into um, literary theory or, you know, theory in general. Like I'm reading a book right now called uh, The Discourse of Modernism or Modernity or something like that by Timothy J. Rice that I actually discovered from doing a JSTOR search on Talan Ukbar Orbis Tertius, and I'm really enjoying this book. I wouldn't recommend a single person read it. I mean, I think it's very good, <laughs> but like, unless you're a discourse nerd uh, and really into like, you know, epistemic periods and all this sort of stuff, it's like, who is this for? You know, what is the, where's the joy to be found in this story? I'm going to suggest there's a lot of joy to be found in Borges. There's a lot of fun there, but. I understand what you're saying. When you find the covers first and they're doing exactly what you want to do with the material, it's hard to go back and find the things that you enjoy about the covers in the original uh, material. I guess that's all I'll say by way of defending Borges for the moment. But Glenn, since we have to, 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 to talk about our favorites, what were your favorite Borges stories that we did read this year? Yeah, well, my single favorite story here was Death and the Compass. It was an absolutely phenomenal detective story that also poked fun at detective stories and, of course, especially poked fun at the people who like them, which is to say me. And uh, I really, really <laughs> enjoyed it. I mean, it was on its own just a great detective story in addition to all of the meta stuff that the story was doing. Uh, it was phenomenal. And uh, it's a story I, I look forward to reading again and again. How about you? That was my number one as well for the year. I There's maybe stories like kind of upon reflection or maybe when we get to our top five that I'd put above it. Uh, if, you know, if there was a, a gun at my head and I said, pick your favorite, truly, like, what's the greatest Borges story you read this year? Um, I might not pick Death in the, the Compass, but the most fun I had with a Borges story this year was with Death in the Compass. I love the way this got me thinking about, you know, post-structuralism or deconstructionism. But you're right. It's a great, nearly perfect detective yarn, and it subverts every single one of the expectations that it puts down on the page. And I just loved it. I loved every second, every sentence of that story. Yeah, same here. And I felt the same way about the Library of Babel as well. And I so actually, frankly, I really liked three versions of Judas and Sloan Akbar Orbis Tertius, even though <laughs> I kind of just complained about the direction that Borges went in that story. Actually, I still love that story. There was a lot of stuff about language there that was really, really phenomenal. I think the only story that didn't land for me at all actually was Pierre Bernard, author of the Quixote, which wasn't a bad story. It just was not, uh, there wasn't any there there for my particular interest. But even still, this was a great, I think, selection of these stories. If you're going to take a survey of Borges, this to me felt like a really good um, introduction to Borges. And I can see how influential these stories in particular, but Borges more broadly, have been on, well, speculative fiction, I mean, just writ large, that the genres, uh, the publishing categories that I love so much would not resemble what they resemble today. They wouldn't look the way they look today without without Borges. And I had a lot of fun going back and, and uh, reading them. We are going to get to read some more Borges next year as well. Yeah. Borges is somebody who always keeps me grounded in some sense in, the, in why I got into philosophy and why I got into literature. He's always raising 
good questions, and he's always throwing uh, philosophers I should be reading my way, even if they are now 60 years old or more. Well, let's talk about the manner in which we are going to get to read more Borges next year, which is to say, let's talk about the themes that our Patreon supporters have selected for us to cover in 2024, because that voting is all wrapped up now. What came in first was role-playing games. And I will say this was very, very close. This was a part of a category that we just called Breaking the Mold that had non-prose fiction on on the list, uh, several different categories. RPGs won, but it was very close. Uh, Pseudo-scholarship was only two votes behind. uh, And then only three votes behind that actually was comics. And I even had to wait a few extra days to to call this one because it was so close. I just looking at this thinking, well, if one straggler comes in and votes differently, then the outcome is going to be very different. So uh, waited to close that out. But the result is role-playing games. And so we are going to do seven weird fiction role-playing game supplements next year. This will be a combination of modules, which is to say adventures or scenarios or campaigns, and then also source books, which is to say books about the fictional world of this or that role-playing game. Um, I'll just list the games that we're going to be covering here rather than the the modules. But next year, we're going to cover Vampire the Masquerade, The Call of Cthulhu, also Trail of Cthulhu. We're going to cover Dungeon Crawl Classics. We're going to cover a storytelling game called Don't Walk in Winter Wood. We're going to cover Delta Green, and then we're going to cover Morkborg as well. And here, I will actually say what the module is going to be, or at least who it's written by, which is to say it's written by Brian Evanson, and I'm very excited about that. And maybe just generally, I'm pretty excited about this. We've done a little bit of role-playing game material in the past, and I think it's going to be a lot of fun to dedicate a series to, well, really what is a massive part of weird fiction fandom. I'm really excited for this too. I, I though I maybe wish we had done pseudo scholarship. That that wish may be over aspirational. <laughs> I think that would have been a lot, a lot for next year. Uh, but hopefully, we'll still be able to do a year of pseudo scholarship. Uh, I think that would be exciting. But this RPG year is going to be great. I'm very excited about it. Uh, I'm always interested, particularly in the way that RPGs um, and their modules and the storytelling around them, people writing in-universe stories, um, I'm interested in the ways that those that can help me sharpen and craft my own writing. There is, These are popular for a reason. Group storytelling is amazing. It's kind of the oldest form of storytelling that exists, in my opinion, people sitting around contributing to kind of a core story. Um, uh, being involved in storytelling. And I think it really does help one as a writer to dig deep into what makes audiences love the story you're telling, what makes people love the world behind the stories and um, how to get people involved in stories you want to tell. So I'm like, I'm really excited about, about this aspect of 2024 for us. We actually lobbied pretty hard for people to vote for pseudo-scholarship in, in contravention <laughs> of, of all ethics. Uh, but uh, yeah, role-playing games did uh, did beat it out. But uh, I think, I like you, I am excited to do it for all of the reasons that you just listed. But also, I'll include on that list that uh, some of these games you know, loom large in pop culture. They're, they're more important in pop culture than the literature that, that they're drawing on, I think, in some, in some ways. Uh, I think, you know, certainly, I think Call of Cthulhu and Vampire the Masquerade might be examples of that. So I'm really excited to to take a look at these uh, really big, really significant 
aspects of, of what we cover here on the show. But we have another theme that we should talk about as well. This is stories in translation, just meaning stories not written originally in English. We had almost 20 names on the ballot for this, but in the end, we're only taking the top four, though there was some pretty good separation here. Uh, but the top four include Borges and Kafka, Absolutely. No surprise there. I think if Borges and or Kafka are on a list, people are going to vote for them. Uh, but also, Sixin Liu and Bora Chung, both of whom I have never read before, and I'm very excited about that. I always like to get something new. But just in general, I think this will be a fun balance here. I think make for an interesting conversation on next year's wrap-up episode. I, I, I'm beyond excited about this. Just to broaden our horizons, to get our listenership involved in world literature, even within the genres we're doing, but mostly to see what has made it outside of the U.S. as being impactful, how people are treating some of these, you know, stories or kind of storytelling conventions, what's going to be different, how history in, in some of these stories is going to be treated differently. Um, what's influenced our own kind of storytelling. I cannot wait for this. And also if you're wondering like, or maybe groaning like, Oh, they're going to be covering RPGs. I'm not interested in that. We're still going to be doing a ton of stories next year. So continue to hang out with us. You'll get, I think you'll be surprised by how good it's going to be. Yeah, and of course, we should say that we're going to do this again next year to you know pick themes for 2025. This was actually an idea that we came up with when Brandon needed a huge chunk of time off in 2022, and we just had to revise the way that we chose what we covered and, and how we were recording as well. Uh, Brandon is going to need a huge chunk of time off again next year, 2024. So <laughs> well, yeah, God um, willing in the creek don't rise, uh, as they say. It's, it's early to tell, but yeah. Hopefully, I will be needing a huge chunk of time off. <laughs> so we are doing it again. We're going to start that series of votes in March. We are going to have something new on that first ballot this time that I'm really, really excited about. And this is actually going to be Brandon's first time hearing about what this is. So we'll get a live take here from him. But one of our Patreon supporters suggested that we include a category called Host's Choice. And uh, my initial reaction to this was that, you know, us picking the stories and putting them on the ballot is contrary to the way this works, which is that we let the audience choose what ends up on the ballots. But then this Patreon supporter clarified that uh, the intention here is not that you and I together, Brandon, would put stories on the ballot, but that just one of us would, and that uh, <laughs> there would be a vote to decide which of us that's going to be, right? So it would be a vote. <laughs> would you rather have stories that Brandon has selected or stories that Glenn has selected? And that sounds awesome to me. So at that point, I was sold. I think it goes without saying that behind the scenes for us, this will not just be about bragging rights, but also free beer, maybe for a year or so. <laughs> Let's just see how that goes. So that will be a new category on the ballot for next year that I'm excited about. That is thrilling. What a great idea. We should also maybe mention here that uh, in 2024, we'll be launching uh, the Clay Temple Film Show. That's going to be at least starting out, you know, me talking about John Carpenter movies, but it's also going to be the bucket where we dump all of our film recommendations, Glenn and I talking about movies together. And uh, I'm really excited about that. We have some episodes already in the can and it's uh, it's turning out all right. So hopefully you'll stay along for that. Um, though it won't be Elder Sign, it'll be part of the network in general. 
And if you're with us on Patreon at certain tiers, you've actually already got an advanced preview of some of those shows. And uh, if you're not with us on Patreon, join us for that. Join us to vote on what we're going to cover in 2025 and also the stories that haven't been selected yet for 2024 as well, in addition to the, you know, well over 100 bonus episodes as well. Well, and since we are in promo mode here, let's take a little break for an ad and then uh, we'll be right back. Well, now we've come to the part of the show that we used to actually lead with, which is the part of the show where we reflect on everything that we covered in the past year, really take stock of what we did here on Elder Sign. And what we did a lot this year, we did a ton of stuff. We covered 30 stories over 36 episodes. And of course, that's more episodes than we normally would do. We had a lot of commissions. And we'll talk about that later. Uh, something that I found interesting is what writers we covered multiple times or multiple stories for this year. Borges, obviously, we just talked about that. Uh, but also Alan Moore and Seabury Quinn. And this has big implications for who it is that we have actually covered the most on Elder Sign so far in the years that we've been on the air. And if uh, you had asked me ahead of time to predict who that was going to be by this point in the show, I would have said, obviously, it's going to be H.P. Lovecraft. But uh, it is not H.P. Lovecraft. It is a tie between Borges and Alan Moore, each with six stories, though we have done more episodes and more minutes on Alan Moore than Borges. So I guess he wins the tiebreaker there. But right behind them are HPL and Robert E. Howard. So, you know, Lovecraft not entirely out of the out of the count there. But I was really surprised to uh, discover, I suppose, that we have covered this much Alan Moore. I, I'm surprised that we've covered this much Borges. I mean, Moore doesn't surprise me. We've been working our way through uh, Voices of the Fire, his novel, that's, yeah, we've put a lot of time and energy into that, into that novel. And um, Borges also doesn't surprise me, I guess, because, well, we just did a lot of Borges this year. That was one of our themes. So <laughs> that's right. We, yeah, yeah. we should have done a bunch <laughs> of Borges. Um, yeah, but I think one thing I love about what we've done over the years and this year in particular is look at a lot of the modern classics of horror, you know, and, and this is stuff that didn't make the themes, but we'll talk about it soon anyway, like uh, Sticks by Carl Edward Wagner, uh, Michael Shea's The Autopsy, uh, which kind of leapt into the popular consciousness thanks to Guillermo del Toro's Netflix anthology series, a cabinet of curiosities, um, and and a whole bunch of other writers. P. Jelly Clark is is getting really big, and and other contemporary horror writers. Uh, and I just can't wait to do more of that and really just engage with the writing scene as it is today, with bringing to people's attention, bringing to our audience's attention things that they should check out if they're interested in giving them a preview. Um, really, what I love about what we're doing here uh, is 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 attempting to keep the whole writing, reading ecosystem very active. And I just hope people are going out there and buying books of contemporary writers and, I don't know, making sure they can buy beer or groceries or something like that. Uh, and that's that's part of what I love about doing this show. Same here. And of course, it's our listeners we have to thank for that. I mean, everything that we cover at this point is chosen by our listeners. Uh, 
Patreon supporters nominate episodes to the ballots, and then they vote on what we cover. Of course, we also receive a lot of commissions from Patreon supporters. This year, we had nine commissioned stories. A lot of them we did as two-parters. There were some writers who were new to the show because of commissions. One of them, Richard Matheson, of course, classic, very famous writer. But then also, yeah, Carl Edward Wagner uh, and Stephen Graham Jones. I guess Carl Edward Wagner is no longer really contemporary, uh, but is more contemporary than Richard Matheson, I guess. But Stephen Graham Jones, contemporary writers of the sort that you're thinking about there, Brandon. So yeah, we just want to take a moment here to express our gratitude for the generosity behind these commissions. It's great to have the impetus to do these episodes and explore new writers and also, of course, to be brought into stories that we know our listeners really love. It is also a huge part of the fiscal health of the network and uh, means a lot to us. I was just blown away by the generosity, I guess, and, and 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 interest that our listeners have in what we do and wanting to hear us talk about stories they love. Trusting us with that, that's a huge deal. Uh, so thank you so much. And man, we're just we're just really blessed and lucky, folks, Glenn, here to to have the listeners we do, to have um the supporters that we do, to have people interested to hear us talk at all instead of, you know, telling us to, to, to shut up in the bar we're at because we're talking too fast <laughs> and too loud. You know, this is a, a nice change of pace for us. It is. It really is. Uh, I do have to be the bearer of bad news about commissions, though, which is to say that we, uh, we've we actually been closed for commissions. We closed uh, for commissions about halfway through this year, but we are going to be closed all the way through 2024. Uh, I mean, I, we, we mentioned already about needing to take some time off. We're still going to, of course, get all of our regularly scheduled episodes out, all of our Patreon episodes and so on, but we are going to have to be closed for taking on anything extra for 2024, though we are still doing commissions as Patreon rewards, of course. So that's a way to go about getting some commissions if you're still interested in that. Uh, another type of episode that we did this year, or really I should say that I did this year, I guess, were guest host episodes where someone who is not Brandon comes on the show and talks to me about <laughs> something. Uh, and of course, these guest host episodes are really a form of advertising. It's for people to come on to let our listeners know about their creative projects. I did two of these this year, and the projects were a sword and sorcery magazine called New Edge Sword and Sorcery. That was a Kickstarter that we were promoting, and that Kickstarter was successful. So even if you were not a backer of the Kickstarter, you can now just go get New Edge Sword and Sorcery. And uh, it's got a brand new, never seen before Michael Moorcock story in it. So I think you should go get it. Uh, definitely check that out. The other project was a really excellent, just phenomenal, really, weird fiction anthology called Moon Calves. This is also available. It's got two authors in it whom we have covered on the show and really loved. Those are Lisa Tuttle and Brian Evanson. And then, of course, it's full of writers, so I hope that we will get to, to cover someday. In addition to being closed for commissions for half of this year, I also had to turn down a lot of guest host business for, well, the same reasons of just being uh, too busy. But it broke my heart because I really enjoy doing these. But even when we couldn't get them done, we were still able to run a lot of ads for people's creative projects this year. We can still do that next year, even though we're going to be largely closed for extra episodes. So if you've got a book coming out, if you're you know, kickstarting a role-playing game or a magazine or an anthology or anything else, we would love to help you get the word out about that. And uh, you can contact us via email at claytemplemedia at gmail.com to arrange that with us. We really hope you'll do that because, like I said, being a part of this 
uh, world of writing and reading, helping people find an audience, really just because we're an audience for so much as that's out there. There's so much we don't know about. We know it's hard to get the word out about your creative projects. And this is something we're passionate about doing as a podcast network. So just, you know, contact us and and hopefully we'll be able to work something out in terms of getting the word out for your new creative project. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're, you are never, ever, ever anywhere on the network going to hear an ad about car insurance or cell phones or something like that, right? But we do Pet want snacks. to- Yeah, right. But we've got a platform here that lots of people uh, download the episodes and we want to be a part of the community. Part of that is letting people know about what is the new work of the community? What's the new work of the, the fandom here? Uh, so if you're a creator and want to, want to take advantage of us, we would love to help you with that. Uh, there is one last thing that we need to talk about, Brandon, as we are taking stock of what we did in 2023. This is something that I know you're actually really excited to talk about, which is uh, <laughs> all the Patreon episodes that we did, because we did, I mean, we just did so much on Patreon this year. We actually did more Patreon episodes than we did Elder Sign episodes this year. We finished our Swamp Thing bonus series. We did our Sherlock Holmes in Speculative Fiction bonus series. That's uh, two Arthur Conan Doyle stories that we did. We covered A Study in Emerald, which is the weird fiction Sherlock Holmes story written by Neil Gaiman. Uh, Brent and I did a a role-playing game uh, source book called Hudson and Brand for the uh, Call of Cthulhu Gaslight era. And then not actually out yet, it's a little bit of old business coming out next year, is a a Nicholas Meyer, great Star Trek writer, uh, Nicholas Meyer's, uh, one of his novels, uh, one of his Sherlock Holmes novels. Uh, But we did a lot of other stuff this year as well. Oh man, did we ever. We did H.P. Lovecraft's maybe best story, or maybe not my favorite, but maybe best is the the West, the 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 best way to describe it. The Haunter in the Dark. This is peak Lovecraft. It's a story that makes you really feel, you know, the loss of Lovecraft as a person, but also as a literary influence and, and a literary force. It's a fully fleshed out tale. It's full of eeriness and strangeness. And it's the kind of story that just makes you wish that that Lovecraft could have really kept going with his endeavors as a writer. So that that's something we kind of pick up there. We did Ghost Story by Peter Straub. This is a favorite novel of both of ours. Perfect for some Halloween reading. And um, Glenn, it was just great to be able to sit down and have a formal conversation with you about the novel, something we've batted about over the years. We covered the film Aliens in the film show format. Uh, that, was, that was a delight. Also... The Children of Monterosa. I think if we if we were going to talk about Patreon episodes and our favorite uh, stories of all time list that we'll be doing at the end of this episode, this would crack my top three. I adored this story, and you should read it, and then um, pop over to Patreon and hear Glenn and I talk about it. So yeah, thank you so much. So many great episodes on Patreon, and there's more great stuff coming. There are. Yeah, we are going to be starting our next bonus series on Patreon. And, you know, when we say bonus series, we mean that's in addition to the regularly scheduled monthly Patreon episodes that people get. So the next bonus series that we're doing in early 2023 is on Chicago in speculative fiction. We are uh, covering the Gene Wolfe and Neil Gaiman team up called A Walking Tour of the Shambles. Brandon and I have already recorded our episode covering the first Dresden Files novel. Uh, there's going to be some Vampire the Masquerade uh, in that series, and then also some uh, some Batman. We're going to be doing a little bit of Batman, and you might be thinking, but wait, doesn't Batman take place in Gotham? And uh, well, 
you can uh, tune in to find out what is going on there. Uh, we've also, after that series, and these, of course, were all Patreon stretch goals that we have hit thanks to the generosity of uh, our, our listeners. Uh, after that, we're going to be doing a series on The Island of Dr. Moreau. Then after that, we're going to be doing a series on The Willows by Algernon Blackwood. And as I said, all of that is on top of the regular episodes we do on Patreon every month. So there's a lot to come check out on Patreon, really not even just this year or next year, but uh, for years to come. So we hope to see you there. Uh, but now, Brandon, I think we have come to the point of the show that you have just been teasing, which is the when we actually pick the favorite stories that we read on Elder Sign this year. This is a place where you and I, I think are rarely in agreement, which is part of the fun. Uh, we're going to pick a top three of 2023, and then we will um, take a look at our bigger list, a kind of all-time list. Brandon, you get to go first this year. What was your number one favorite story of this year? This is a, a nearly impossible task. As I look back on what we've released this year, I'm going to say in general, my picks, as always, are more or less arbitrary. But looking over the list of what we've released this year, um, I'm going to have to say I think Sticks by Carl Edward Wagner is a story that I haven't stopped thinking about. Uh, and so that's going to be my number one. Okay, yeah, that's a fantastic story. It was my number three, so it made it, uh, you know, made it on my cut as well. <laughs> this is a great mythos story. Uh, Carl Edward Wagner, as we said earlier, was new to us, and uh, I really, really hope that we get to read more Wagner in the future because this was just a phenomenal story. It was really eerie. It, it definitely stick. It definitely sticks. It definitely stuck with me as well, and I was not trying to make a pun there, but uh, you know, it's perfect. <laughs> I haven't actually done any real. Uh, East Coast hiking by myself since we read that story. Uh, but whenever I get a chance to do that again, I know that this story is going to creep up like out of my subconscious and uh, take over my conscious mind and probably make <laughs> me just go back to the car. Yeah, I think, you know, if you come across a, a stone farmhouse um, off, a, off a hiking trail, you've, you've stumbled uh, into the woods and you find a stone farmhouse. I mean, everything, literature for the past couple hundred, of, couple hundred of years has told us to stay away from the house, but um, no one can resist investigating. And uh, I love it. Such a great trope. Glenn, what was your, what was your number one? Yeah, I think I'm going to surprise you here, Brandon, because my favorite story was one that I think you didn't actually like very much. But uh, my favorite story this year was Limping to Jerusalem by Alan Moore. Uh, it's Holy Blood, Holy Grail, the short story. It's basically everything I've ever wanted anything to be. I really, really love this story. Yeah, you wrung a lot of blood from that stone, I, I would say. <laughs> and uh, I was I was actually delighted to hear all the um, historical references and all the, you know, pseudo scholarship um, influences that you got out of reading that story that I, I thought was a fun story. But, you know, I struggle with more, I think, on, on some levels. His topics of interest are very different from my own. And so there's always a little bit of friction when, when I'm reading an Alan Moore story that I eventually resolve, but um, that does surprise me, but maybe it shouldn't. What you have just said about Alan Moore is basically what I just said about Borges 30 minutes ago, right? <laughs> right. So, you know, this is uh, all a matter of taste. And that's really the uh, the point of making these lists in the first place is to uh, get some listeners to shake their fist at the speaker and other listeners to nod along or, you know, high five themselves. But don't do that if you're driving, I guess. But, uh, all right. Before I get into weird metaphors, let's uh, <laughs> let's pick our two and three. Brandon, what was two and three for you? 
two and three for me were uh, Talon, Urkbis, Orbis Tertius, and uh, by, that's a Borges story, and then Mr. Pettiger's Demon by John Connolly. Um, I think both of these stories in different ways are stories I wish I could write. I loved the way that John Connolly was able to update um, so many tropes of kind of the late 19th, early 20th century, you know, ghost story, British ghost story tradition. And that's just something that I'm always aware of uh, is my desire to revive old modes of storytelling and how, and then also knowing how unsaleable that is <laughs> in terms of, of, of getting a, 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 a professional sale. So i uh, blown away by John Connolly's skill. Typically not all of his stories resonate with me, but he is someone whose topics um, and interests do align with my own more often than not. Maybe not the clown story, um, but the fairy, st- the dark fairy story and Mr. Pettinger's demon certainly resonated with me. Certainly stories that I loved. And um, that's it. That's my list. Top three. Glenn, what about you? Yeah. Well, as I mentioned already, Sticks by Carl Edward Wagner is my number three. I thought for sure that my number two was going to be something you were going to have on your list as well. In fact, I expected it would be your your number one, uh, which I guess just means I didn't get to have a drink while we've been recording, at least not for this portion <laughs> of, the, of the show. Uh, but my number two was A Short Guide to the City by Peter Straub. I you know, love stories that actually are not stories, that, <laughs> that don't have people in them, that just are about places. Uh, and that's exactly what this was. And I thought it was phenomenal. I mean, it really is just a guide to this imaginary city. Uh, I would read an entire book of that, um, especially if it's written by Peter Straub, who I think is just a phenomenal wordsmith. Uh, this was the first Peter Straub that we did, though, of course, you and I turned around in pretty rapid succession and got to do Ghost Story. In fact, I think we both had a bookmark in Ghost Story while we were recording A Short Guide to the City. Uh, but I hope that we get more Peter Straub in the future as well. He's a really important American writer of the you know late 20th century. And uh, I'm surprised that we got this far into the show without having covered him. And I hope that uh, that will be rectified. I hope that we'll cover more of him in the future. Yeah, that story didn't didn't make it for me only because I I viewed that story as a bit of uh, tertiary writing to the throat, which is I don't know at least one of Straub's magnum opuses. Um, it's a crown crowning novel of a trilogy called the Blue Rose trilogy. Um, and Glenn, I, I have to say that you're in luck because if you loved his description of that sort of urban cityscape. Um, that's about 30% of what the throat is, is not Milwaukee, um, which is where right. <laughs> these novels take place. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, absolutely loved that story. But what it put me in mind of was the throat and how much I loved that novel. Well, let's talk about some overall rankings here, Brandon, because now that we are four years into this project, your suggestion last year was that uh, we expand our top three of all time list to a top five of all time list. And so, yeah, we're doing that this year. Your current list, your top three from last year, Brandon, were Purity by Thomas Ligotti, then Houses Under the Sea by Caitlin R. Kiernan, and then The Inmost Light by Arthur Mackin. So uh, what are the two stories that you are adding to this list? They might not come from this year, right? They could be coming from any year that we've been on the air. Uh, what are the two that you're adding to this list and where are they going on this list? 
Well, I don't think I'm ready to change my top three yet. I didn't have the chance to go back and reread these, but I'm going to add sticks. That's going to be number four, Um, though that's negotiable as where that might go on the list. And then number five surprised me. I was thinking it might be a Borges story. I made a list of 10. And I think when I re-looked at it, I thought, what do I just want to go back? And what story would just be fun for me to sit in, to revisit? What do I think about a lot still in terms of mood, atmosphere, setting, storytelling style? Um, Number five for me is Old Nathan by David Drake. I was surprised by how much I loved that. Not surprised that I, I, I really love David Drake's storytelling style. We talked about that a little bit in, in Lord of the Isles being one of my favorite kind of fantasy novels, comfort fantasy reads. There's just something about the way he tells stories, and I know I'm repeating myself, that I I admire, but I also just really love. I get a com- lot of comfort out of. Uh, and, and Old Nathan, I think, has got to be on my top five list. Yeah, this is phenomenal. So both of the, the stories that you've added to your your all-time list now are, are people, uh, writers who knew each other. They come from the same writing circle. Uh, so that's really, really interesting to me. And of course, your list is almost entirely people who are contemporary to us. The one exception being Arthur Mack. And my list, of course, is the exact opposite, where there will be only one <laughs> contemporary writer on the list. Uh, my current list, my top three coming into it today was The Murders in the Rue Morgue by Edgar Alan Poe, The Mask by Robert W. Chambers, and then The Transformation of Martin Lake by Jeff Vandermeer. Like you, I am not changing my top three. Those remain my top three, but this was a time for me to reflect uh, anew, I guess, uh, about what we have covered so far, uh, do a bit of re-ranking. And so uh, I'm going to add on this. So I'm going to add to this list, The Mask of the Red Death by Edgar Allan Poe, which, you know, if this were a desert island list, I wouldn't do. I wouldn't repeat an author, but this is really just ranking the stories, right? Uh, So Mask of the Red Death. And then the fifth story I'm adding here is one that didn't even make my top three the year that we covered it, though I did address why that was. But it is The Black Stone by Robert E. Howard. That is a story that I read uh, that I read for the first time in my adolescence, and it's a story that has uh, stuck with me well ever since reading that, and really looms large in my imagination. And it's a story that just when I was looking over the 170 episodes that we have done of this show, <laughs> which is really about 145 stories, uh, I said, "Yeah, that's that's one I want to read again, like the next chance I get for sure." I love that both of our number fives are just kind of these comfort stories that just did a lot for us. I mean, for one, you know, one reason or another, just um, writers who, you know, we found at, at a certain time in our lives that the revisiting of which has just been a real pleasure for us and, and a real joy in doing this show. And yeah, I'm glad to hear that, even though um, I still can't convince you that anybody's written anything good in the past in the past 20 years. I, we'll get there. We're, we're going to get there. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about uh, about this millennium, right? Uh, or this century. I'm not I'm not sold on it yet, but uh, I don't know. Maybe if I'm cryogenically frozen and come back 500 years, I'll I'll find something of historical interest <laughs> to to now. <laughs> uh, before we move on, well, double before we move on. But I just want to say, you know, this is just a, a game for us. Your list as a listener will definitely be different from ours. Uh, but we have a place where you can come tell us 
your top three of this year and your top five of all time that we have uh, covered on the show. That's our Discord server. And uh, we'd love to love to know what your rankings are, what your favorites are. But really, before we go into the next segment of the show, which is going to be talking about writing craft, uh, we want to take a minute here to beg you for reviews of the show. And actually, even before we do that, we want to acknowledge what a pain it is to write reviews of the show. And we owe a huge thanks to everyone who already has. I mean, really, we're so grateful that you have taken the time to do that because it is really a pain. But now to the begging part. For this show to continue, we really, really need to get 100 reviews on Apple Podcasts. Right now, we're around 40 or so. 100 is a pretty small fraction of the number of downloads that we get per episode. So if everyone listening to the show were to write a review, we would get to that number immediately. And that would be awesome because when we hit that goal... We are going to reward you for doing that because it's really us asking you to do work, right? And uh, in exchange for the work, we want to give you something. And so as soon as we get to 100 reviews, we will do a bonus series here on Elder Sign available to everybody covering The Call of Cthulhu by H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, We don't have that mapped out because that, well, that would be jinxing it, I suppose, right? But, uh, you know, it'd be four or five, maybe six episodes. We then also would do some extra episodes for Patreon supporters as well, just because uh, we'd like to do extra stuff for Patreon supporters. So we hope that will be an enticement to you because we really do need the reviews in order to keep the show on the air. There is a link in the show notes that uh, should take you right to the place where you can do that. And, uh, Uh, Let us both again say thank you so much for taking the time to, well, do what is really a a burdensome chore for us. It's really heartening, I think, for me to always go go log into Apple Podcasts and see the reviews for this show. And, you know, that's something that kind of keeps the fuel in the tank for me, Uh, you know, just getting that positive feedback once in a while about doing these shows and doing the work that we're doing. Um, But there there are really good reasons for us to get to a hundred reviews or why we need a hundred reviews. It's can help grow the show. It'll help us reach a new audience. And that's really important. As Glenn says, just to keep us going, just to keep us on the air, we need to grow. Uh, we know you're telling people about, you know, listening to us and we grow that way, but yeah, we're only getting really a fraction of the reviews based, uh, you know, kind of correlated to the downloads we're getting. And, um, we just want to grow. We want to reach people. We want to get stories out there that we love. We want to hear more about the stories that you love and we want to cover them. And, um, doing reviews is just one way you can do it, but it's a very, very important way. So if you haven't reviewed the show, you're listening to this episode, just pause real quick before you hear us read out some of our favorite passages from the year. Give us the review now and then come back and finish the show. You'll realize it takes almost no time to say some uh, say some nice things, hopefully, about, about us to get other people involved who might be looking for a show just like this and they can't find it because it's just not in the search charts just yet. Well, since we are begging people to say nice things about us on the internet, Brandon, let's uh, let's go say some nice things about other people <laughs> on the internet ourselves. And uh, yeah, as you said, we're going to jump into the last segment of the show now, which is our writing craft section. Uh, really, we're just going to talk about some favorite passages. We've each picked two passages from stories this year that we just think are awesome and want to read into the microphone. And uh, Brandon, you're going to go first this year. What uh, What's the first one you've got for us? Well, I've chosen uh, a selection from 
Talan Ukbar Orbis Tertius, uh, the opening of the story, which I think we both really loved. Uh, both of my selections are a little long because you're in review and we can do anything, but this is the the, the second paragraph uh, and on and going on from there of Talan Ukbar Orbis Tertius. Bioy Caceres had come to dinner at my house that evening, and we had lost all track of time in a vast debate over the way one might go about composing a first-person novel whose narrator would omit or distort things and engage in all sorts of contradictions, so that a few of the book's readers, a very few, might divine the horrifying or banal truth. Down at the far end of that hallway, the mirror hovered, shadowing us. We discovered, very late at night, such a discovery is inevitable, that there is something monstrous about mirrors. That was when Bioy remembered a saying by one of the Hesiarchs of Ukbar. Mirrors and copulations are abominable, for they multiply the number of mankind. I asked him where he'd come across that memorable epigram, and he told me it was recorded in the Anglo-American Cyclopedia in its article on Ukbar. The big old house, we had taken it furnished, possessed a copy of that work. On the last pages of volume XLVI, I don't know, I should know Roman numerals, sorry, that's an editorial. <laughs> on the last pages of volume XLVI, we found an article on Uppsala on the first volume of XLVII, oral Altaic languages. Not a word on Ukbar. Bioy, somewhat bewildered, consulted the volumes of the index. He tried every possible spelling, Ukbar, 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 Aukbar, all in vain. Before he left, he told me it was a region in Iraq or Asia Minor, I confessed I nodded a bit uncomfortably. I surmised that the undocumented country and its anonymous Hesariarch were a fiction that Bioy had invented on the spur of the moment out of modesty in order to justify a fine-sounding epigram. A sterile search through one of the atlases of Justice Perth's reinforced my doubt. There's just so much great there, I think, in the setup of this story, in the setup of the conflict of the story, uh, of what the narrator Borges is going to discover, but there's also here so much here about friendship. There's so much that I think harkens back to Poe, even in murders in the room morgue in this kind of relationship in this Gothic house and the kinds of late night conversations that these friends are having. I just, I love the opening of Talan Okbar Orbis Tertius. Yeah, maybe even actually the, the the Edgar Allan Poe story, The Sphinx, which is two people in a house avoiding cholera and uh, looking out the window and so on. Yeah, I think there's a lot of of that Poe moodiness there. I really love that passage as well. That was a story that I you know invoked earlier as my example of why I like Gene Wolfe more than Borges, but I really love this story. It's a fantastic story. And uh, I also have picked a Borges passage for one of my uh, two favorites this year. Before I read mine, I do want to say that you know Borges, of course, wrote originally in Spanish. And so what we are reading is the translation of Andrew Hurley. I think it's important to uh, acknowledge uh, the great job that he's done in uh, you know rendering this into beautiful English prose. Uh, I'm going to read a passage here from Death and the Compass, the, the detective story by Borges that we read. And this is all speech. This is all dialogue, or really monologue, I guess, by the detective uh, Lundrot. He says, possible, 
but uninteresting. You will reply that reality has not the slightest obligation to be interesting. I will reply in turn that reality may get along without that obligation, but hypotheses may not. In the hypothesis that you suggest, here, on the spur of the moment, chance plays a disproportionate role. What we have here is a dead rabbi. I would prefer a purely rabbinical explanation, not the imaginary bunglings of an imaginary burglar. Uh, and of course, as it turns out, uh, Lenrod is completely wrong, but <laughs> Borges here is pointing out exactly how detective stories really work and pointing out that that's absurd, that that actually is not at all how, how real life functions, poking fun at me and my uh, my rating tastes. Uh, and I absolutely love it. But of course, part of what's so great about it is that he's gotten the voice of a character uh, like Sherlock Holmes, maybe even a little more like Hercule Poirot. He's just gotten it down. It's just perfect. It is perfect. And that whole story is just, it's such a delight. I mean, I think anybody, I think anybody could read that story and enjoy it, especially if they've seen any detective show ever you know, or read any detective story ever. It, it's a nearly perfect story. And uh, yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad you chose a passage from that. My instinct was to, was to try to find a passage in Death in the Compass as well. But I, I realized, I just love the descriptive nature of the opening of the story that I chose uh, for Borges, who I feel, felt like we we had to read some Borges over the air today. Yeah, that's interesting. I had no idea. In fact, I didn't expect that you were going to read any Borges, but uh, well, we've doubled down. I, I wonder actually if we have chosen the same thing, or at least chosen from the same story for uh, number two here. So what's what's your second passage? Well, my second passage comes from, from Styx here, uh, because Carl Edward Wagner just wrote this beautiful story. And this is a descriptive passage uh, from early on when our protagonist, Colin Leverett, first discovers this kind of property that will play a large role in the rest of the story. Leverett was roughly two miles from the bridge when he came upon the ruins of a house. It was an unlovely colonial farmhouse, box-shaped and gambrel-roofed, fast falling into the ground. Windows were dark and empty. The chimneys on either end looked ready to topple. Rafters showed through open spaces in the room, and the weathered boards of the walls had in places rotted away to reveal hewn timber beams. The foundation was stone and disproportionately massive. From the size of the unmortared stone blocks, its builder had intended the foundation to stand forever. The house was nearly swallowed up by undergrowth and rampant lilac bushes, but Leverett could distinguish what had been a lawn with imposing shade trees. Farther back were gnarled and sickly apple trees, and an overgrown garden where a few lost flowers still bloomed, wan and serpentine from years in the wild. The stick lattices were everywhere, the lawn, the trees, even the house was covered with uncanny structures. They reminded Leverett of a hundred misshapen spider webs, grouped so closely together as to almost ensnare the entire house and clearing. Wandering, he sketched page on page of them as he cautiously approached the abandoned house. I could keep reading here. I mean, this whole page is really amazing, but I love Wagner. I love Wagner's 
descriptions in the negative, right? This unmortared, un whatever it is. That that's a like a, a secret love of mine. I love it when writers are able to describe things in the negative. It's something that can only exist in literature. I think you can't do it in any other medium. I guess art uses uh, the visual medium of art uses like negative space, but the negative description is something that I love. But also this stumbling across upon a house. Um, with all of these odd stick lattices hanging from over the place, the way he ratchets up tension, but then also Leverett's sort of innocent aesthetic interest in it uh, is also really on display here. And um, wow, I just, I think it's such a great descriptive passage. I do as well. I, I think if I recall correctly, we actually read that passage on the air when we did that episode. I don't remember which of us did. I don't but remember either. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that story is so full of beautiful descriptions of you know the northeastern United States, those sort of rural or wilderness areas of the northeastern United States. And uh, yeah, I'm actually a little surprised that I didn't go for that because normally that's the sort of thing I'm doing is uh, hijacking the show at this point to say, hold on, let me read a five-page landscape description from some 19th century writer or from anybody, right? But uh, I actually didn't do that this time, though I have picked something that is a description, which is to say that uh, I want to read a passage from Peter Straub's A Short Guide to the City. Continuing further south, we come to the Polish district proper, which also houses pockets of Estonians and Lithuanians. More than the city's sadly declining downtown area, this district has traditionally been regarded as the city's heart and has remained unchanged for more than a hundred years. Here, the visitor may wander freely among the markets and street fairs, delighting in the sight of well-bundled children rolling hoops, patriarchs in tall fur hats and long beards, and women gathering around the numerous communal water pumps. The sausages and stuffed cabbage sold at the food stalls may be eaten with impunity, and the local beer is said to be of an unrivaled purity. Violence in this district is invariably domestic, and the visitor may feel free to enter the frequent political discussions, which in any case partake of a nostalgic character. In late January or early February, the South Side is at its best, with the younger people dressed in multi-layered heavy woolen garments decorated with the reindeer or snowflake motif, and the older women of the community seemingly vying to see which of them can outdo the others in the thickness, blackness, and heaviness of her outer garments and in the severity of the traditional headscarf known as the babushka. In late winter, the neatness and orderliness of these colorful folk may be seen at its best, for the wandering visitor will often see the bearded paterfamilias sweeping and shoveling not only his immaculate bit of sidewalk, for these houses are as close together as those of the wealthy along the lakefront, so near to one another that until very recently, telephone service was regarded as an irrelevance, but his tiny front lawn as well, with its Marian shrines, creches, ornamental objects such as elves, trolls, postboys, etc., it is not unknown for residents here to proffer the stranger an invitation to inspect their houses in order to display the immaculate condition of the kitchen with its well-blackened wood stove and polished ornamental tiles, and perhaps even extend a thimble glass of their own peach or plum brandy to the thirsty visitor. And there is a lot that I love about this passage. I mean, there's a lot that I love just about this whole story, which is basically this sort of thing, just over and over again, describing different parts of the city, different communities in the city. But what I love most about this is the way that Straub here is describing a perfectly normal city in the Midwest United States, but making it seem utterly alien. I mean, he's writing this from a kind of anthropological perspective, right? As someone who himself is a visitor to this place and is dispassionately 
remarking on the culture of this neighborhood in this city. I mean, even this line about saying that the violence here is domestic violence, so it's fine to get in political arguments with people in a bar because that won't that won't come to blows. But the dismissiveness of the seriousness of domestic violence there, right, is this dispassionate way of writing about something. It's this dispassionate way of writing about the horrors that lie underneath the surface of, well, every community in this city. I think when we covered this episode, I think when we covered this story on that episode, we actually read the passage that was about murdering people in their homes as well, which is written about in this same kind of dispassionate way. And I think that's a really key part of the weirdness and the the unsettled horror of this of this story and it's uh maybe not something i want to read all the time because i don't want to feel that all the time but if i ever want that feeling i'm going to come back to this story for that yeah i think you should i mean it listening to you read that made me really wish that Straub had teamed up with with Gene Wolfe and Neil Gaiman for a walking tour of the shambles. <laughs> there's there's a, a level of description of subtle horror and of plausible life here that um, I think would counterbalance some of the comedy in, in a walking tour of the shambles and really kind of complement it in a in a way that I think um, I don't know would deepen my pleasure of, of of a walking tour of the shambles. But yeah, this was a great choice to read, a great passage to read. It, it just Straub is Straub has this ability to take this objective view and use this plain style of writing to draw you in. There's a rhythm to his writing too, um, and and leave you feeling unsettled because. It's so easy to glide over the discomfort and the horror. And that's part of what he's doing, I think, is making you complicit in it, especially in these um, in these uh, trilogy of novels called the Blue Rose Trilogy that we've been talking about, of which this passage could be easily tied to. And it's just, um, he's a master. He's someone... He's someone who I feel I need to study more. His writing style is unbelievably good. This was an experience that I had reading Ghost Story as well, as we talked about on on that episode on on Patreon. This uh, just joy in the language, joy in the the facility with language that Peter Straub has, even as what he's describing is pretty horrifying. And uh, it's a real it's a real gift. It's a real talent, and it's a real experience. Uh, you know, as a, as a reader, and something I recommend for everyone. And uh, as we get out of here, we should say a huge thanks to our listeners again because. Uh, you know, we got to read this beautiful writing because of you, because of our listeners, uh, nominating things to the ballot, commissioning episodes for us to cover. And uh, you've all chosen wisely. Uh, this was a great year, uh, 2023. <laughs> we read some amazing stories, beautiful language. It was difficult, actually, to narrow all of these choices down. We, of course, inevitably left many listeners' favorites off of our lists and uh, just undiscussed here on this wrap-up episode. But we hope that we can continue this conversation on our Discord server with all all of you. And so that's it. That's 2023. That is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. I just want to echo your thanks, Glenn. And I want to say also to all of you who are writing, who are striving to be a part of, you know, to break into, you know, professional sales and writing or whatever novels, stories, um, keep going, you know, like this is this, this, 
we're reading stuff in anthologies. We're reading stuff that was originally published in magazines. We're reading stuff that was published posthumously or, you know, it's just, there's, there's no reason to stop striving, you know? And, and, uh, so I hope you'll continue to do that. Hopefully something you write will make it on our show someday. And we'd love for that to be the case, but, um, I don't know, maybe I said it already. I'm Brandon Buddha. And that's what you always do. This network is going to take a break for the holidays. So elder sign will be back on January 9th with, Harlan Ellison's famous story. Uh, I think I called it infamous in that episode. I have no mouth and I must scream. And our little holiday break here is a fantastic time to join us on Patreon. If you have not already done that, you will be just in time for our two Christmas episodes, one of which is a uh, spooky story by Louis D. Bernier. And of course, as we have said earlier on the episode, there are more than a hundred other bonus episodes on Patreon that uh, can keep you company if you've got a long journey for the holiday. Uh, that includes our series on At the Mountains of Madness, our still ongoing series on Sherlock Holmes, and many, many other really awesome stories that we've covered there. So please do check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash Clay Temple Media. And until next year, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>